Now, you, you probably know uh, we hand out the Gospel of Matthew. Um, maybe you have it, the, the journal Gospel of Matthew. But someone gave me the Gospel of Matthew in scroll form this morning. And so I'm very thankful to the Whites, uh, Elena White, who gave me these. That was very, very, uh, is a very good gift. So I'll keep this one around. Yes, uh, I think it's an original document, by the way. So <laughs> I thought that was, that was very cute. That, that blessed me this morning. And uh, I know that's what it's like with kids teaching and being back there serving, even just seeing them on a, a Sunday morning. Um, I love the interaction we get with adults and kids here. So thankful for what we call, what we call multi-generational ministry. So thankful that we are not one generation in here. Um, if you would, open with me in your scrolls to Matthew 27. That's where we'll be, Matthew 27, 15 to 26. Suzanne, you did a great job reading this story, and I love stories in the Bible, and we are into the heart of the cross, our series on the cross of Christ. And I had to ask myself this question, how did the cross come to be the paramount symbol of Christianity? Uh, because Christians have used lots of different symbols throughout history to, to represent the faith. Uh, in fact, I was watching a movie this week, and there was a Christian symbol that we often don't think about, the key row uh, symbol of Christianity that was used militarily, right? Uh, conquer in, in this symbol, Constantine had this so-called vision from God, and the key, the row, these two Greek letters on top of each other, and he literally put those on the banners that he took into battle. And now, we, we don't. You won't find that symbol in our, in our um, building, but there are some other Christian symbols you're going to realize, right? Like the, the fish, ichthus. You're going to recognize some of those symbols, but the cross is the paramount symbol of Christianity. In fact, it's very important to our church. It's a project we're working on right now is replacing our cross out front. How many of you notice that it's not there? Our Oh, wow, a number of you, very observant, very observant. We're replacing that right now, and I'm, I'm super excited. It looks like, um, uh, now I don't make the decision on this, but it looks like we're actually going to put that cross a little bit higher, and we're going to put it on the building um, where it was. It's going to look cool. So thankful for, for uh, the people that are working on that. But the cross is a symbol. It means something. It means something to us. But how did it become such a big, such a central symbol of our faith. Because in this time of Jesus' crucifixion, a cross meant a number of things. If you think about the Romans, uh, you know, a, the cross was a detestable thing. I think, uh, I think it, it, was, it was, was it Cicero, or, and I think it was Plato who said that the cross should not even be uttered from a Roman's lips because it is so detestable, right? That that punishment should never be threatened for a Roman citizen. It was, it was a way to utterly shame, dishonor, and drag out someone's execution as long as you could, right? If, if um, in today's day and age, when we think about capital punishment, we are tr thinking about the most merciful way to end someone's life. The cross was the exact opposite. How can we make this the worst, the hardest, the most difficult thing, the most shameful thing for someone to endure? That's what the Romans thought 
about the cross. If you're a Roman citizen, then that meant that if you were ever given the death penalty, you knew that you would never, never have to think about being crucified as execution. To the Jews, the Jewish people that are being occupied by the Romans, uh, this is what the cross meant to them. The cross was a piece of wood. And that was very important because in the Old Testament, um, Moses had relayed to the people that anyone who's hanged by a tree is cursed. It's clear that they are cursed. They're enduring the curse of God. And so for a Jewish person to be hung on a cross was the same as being hung from a tree, which is why Paul brings that up in those words. He talks about the cross as a tree. To the Jews, it meant that person did something wrong. God doesn't like them. God doesn't like, I think about Job's friends, how they assumed, wow, because all these disasters are happening to Job, God must not like you. You must have done something wrong. Hanging, dying, by hanging from a tree was a clear sign, God does not like you. You don't have God's favor. You're enduring God's curse. I think what we can take from this is that in our context, while while we look at the cross and and immediately as Christians, we begin to think, this is how God loves us, and this is a good thing, and this is a beautiful thing, we have to understand that at the time, the cross was an ugly, detestable shame. It was a clear rejection by people, and to the Jewish people, it was a clear rejection from God himself. That's what we need to understand about the cross culturally. I think a lot of times uh, I get this question. In fact, I was at camp two weeks ago, and, and a few of the middle school girls asked this. They came up to me afterwards and said, how can God be good when there's so much evil in the world? I said, that is a really good question. I said, I like to ask it a, a little different, and we'll get to that. But it's basically to take this question of how can God be good when there's so much evil? And I switch that question around to how can God bring so much good out of so much evil in our world, so much brokenness? You see, when we look at the cross, we think as Christian of God's ransom, God's redeeming, God's embracing a people that are broken, that are sinful, that were evil. It's a good thing, but it was a bad thing before it was good. It's amazing. We look at the people, and in their words, they have shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David as Jesus came in, the triumphal entry. And just one week later in the story, it's taken us one year, but it's only one week in the story um, to go from Palm Sunday to Jesus' cross. It literally has taken us one year. A year ago, Palm Sunday, we preached on the triumphal entry. And here we are in our series on the cross. The shouts of Hosanna to the Son of David. And at the end of our story, what what Miss Suzanne just read, the people shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. Now, how do we get there? Let's look at the story. Look at the story with me. Verse 15 of chapter 27, Pilate questions the so-called king. Pilate questions the so-called king. 
Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to them, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, here's what we need to understand. While the kangaroo court of the religious leaders has already happened, which is pretty much a plot, right? It was not a search for truth. It was not seeking justice. It was, how can we get rid of Jesus? Now, now um, get this. The Jewish people being occupied by the Romans did not have the power, the authority to execute Jesus. If they did that, it would clearly be called murder. And so they are, they are appealing to the authority over them, Pilate, the Roman authority over them, to accuse Jesus. Now, Pilate has this authority. He has this authority. Jesus knows it. The religious leaders know it. Pilate knows that he has authority to execute, to commute a sentence over Jesus. And he leads with the question, are you king of the Jews? That's Pilate's big question here. Jesus answers with the same idiom he used with the religious leaders, basically saying, you said it. You said it. And that's, a, that's, that's an idiom, um, but it, it's saying, uh, you've already said it. It's a clear yes, clear yes. So then what happens is the religious leaders accuse. Now, this is how court worked before a Roman magistrate, right? It was pretty simple. It was pretty simple, right? Um, pretty simple legal process, uh, maybe too simple. Someone, a group of people would come up before the magistrate, and they would throw out accusations. They would justify those accusations. This is what we heard Jesus say. This is who he said he was. They accuse. And then what happens is that person makes their defense. Accusation and defense. And from those two things, from the accusations and from the defense, Pilate or whoever is the magistrate would normally withdraw from the people. He would think about it. And then he would come back and give his judgment. It was so simple. It was so simple this court of the Jews that the Romans had, accusation and defense. Now, here are the accusations in the background. If we looked over, which you don't need to, but you could write this down. John 18, we hear them accuse Jesus of this. They say that he's done evil. Jesus has done evil. That's why we're bringing him to you, Pilate. He's done evil. Luke records, Luke chapter 23, verse 2, these exact words that he is Jesus is misleading our nation. He's misleading our nation, which maybe has a hint of, of uh, he's leading a rebellion. But misleading our nation, I really, I appreciate those words, right? Um, and here's why. I take great comfort in those words. Uh, you know, many of you, you've led community groups, you've led classrooms, Calvary Institutes, um, you've, you've led ministry teams here, you know, and, and maybe you've heard a hint of, oh, I really don't like your leadership from somebody. Jesus heard those exact words as well. So you can take comfort if you're leading, uh, maybe, maybe you're a manager at your work and someone does not like what you're asking them to do, that, that Jesus committed the sin of not doing what people wanted him to do. 
All right? He, he committed that. They accused him of misleading their nation. He didn't do what the people wanted him to do. Now, normally the magistrate would get this opportunity to listen to a defense. But what does Jesus do here? He is accused. He's accused of, of awful and terrible things, and yet he says nothing. Jesus is silent. His opportunity to rightfully appeal to Pilate at why the religious leaders are wrong and lying. And Jesus is silent. He says nothing. And so Pilate intervenes and he says, they have a long list. Don't you hear them? Don't you hear the many accusations that they make? And yet Jesus says nothing. And Pilate is amazed by this. He is amazed that Jesus is not willing to defend himself, that he keeps his mouth closed, which reminds us of of Isaiah 53, right? The, The sheep, the lamb that's led to its slaughter is silent. So right here, Pilate is amazed at Jesus' confession in in silence. And in that amazement, this is what Pilate does. We need to see this in the story. Pilate gives Jesus not only a second chance at defending himself, but even more than that, Pilate gives Jesus a way to escape the religious leaders. Do you know that? Pilate gives Jesus a way of escape against the religious leaders. Verse 15 says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Here's the key. One prisoner is released who they want. Pilate doesn't decide this. He wants to know who the people want released or free. Verse 16, And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? And this is interesting. Verse 18. For Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides that little little, uh, look into Pilate's knowledge, he knew that it was out of envy, not justice. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. What you really need to see is that his wife makes a judgment right there. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. I know Jesus is in the right. I know that he's innocent. Don't don't get caught up in a judgment against this innocent person. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, 
Let him be crucified. You see what Pilate does? Pilate looks, he understands his context. He knows the religious leaders. He's had to work with them. And he knows it's because of envy. These religious leaders are jealous of the influence that Jesus has that's detracting from their ministry. And so they want to cut Jesus out. Right? Here, here is first century, first century religious territorialism. Right? Jesus cannot exist in Jerusalem. He has planted his church too close to the religious leaders. He cannot be supported. And so Pilate tries to go around the religious leader's desire. This is called the, the Paschal Amnesty. It was the custom uh, during, during this feast of Passover to release a prisoner. And so Pilate thinks, oh, Jesus has such a following and such an influence that they're envious of. All I need to do is appeal to the people, the masses. Do you want Jesus released from prison? And this is when he finds that Jesus is not wanted, that they want rid of him. That's what you do with someone you don't want. You get rid of them. And instead, they ask for Barabbas, which which my Bible translates robber, but this word really has more of a connotation of an insurrectionist, right? Someone who is leading a, a rebellion. And that Barabbas, whose name means son of father, is probably a, probably a popular prisoner. And that's why he's brought up by Pilate. Now, here's what, here's what Pilate doesn't know. Here's what Pilate doesn't know. Jesus does not need redemption from the cross. Jesus does not need to be saved from the cross. Pilate's plan. I can get Jesus out of this sentence. What he doesn't know is that God's plan is that Jesus would redeem his people through his cross. Jesus' silence right here is is the point that Jesus does not need redemption, but he is the redeemer himself. And that his redemption is brought about through the cross. Now here's here's where this story adds to the cross. It's, It's Pilate trying to get Jesus out of this sentence. And not only Pilate, but Pilate's wife. What does she say? He's innocent. He's righteous. Pilate, you are the one on the judgment seat. You see it yourself, but not only that, your most trusted counsel, your very own wife comes up to you and says, my experience, my perspective, what I see, and if Pilate is a wise husband, he's going to have an open ear to what his wife has to say, right? We know this, fellas. And what does she say? Jesus is righteous, And you're going to be in trouble, Pilate. You're going to be in trouble if you're the one who sends him to the cross. She knows, she believes, she's confident. Jesus is right. He's wrongly accused. This is a theme we've brought up before, but we need to understand. It's important to Matthew that Jesus is sent to his cross not because he's guilty, 
Jesus is going to be crucified as an innocent man. Innocent. But the crowds who are gathered are convinced by the religious leaders to release Barabbas. Pilate's plot doesn't work. Release Barabbas. And so he asks, what shall I do with Jesus? And here's the point. What shall I do? Like, what, what is Pilate expecting the people to say? And the truth is, if Jesus, who is being accused of leading a rebellion, uh, this term that's used over and over, the Christ, literally refers to God's chosen king, God's anointed king, who would be a real problem for the Romans who are occupying Israel right now. That would be a real problem, right? And Pilate really wants to know, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Because that would be a big problem for Pilate. Now, now, if Jesus was leading an insurrection himself or a rebellion, there are two kinds of punishment. And the first is execution. That was on the table. But it didn't have to be execution. It could be something like banishment. You know, Jesus, you, you must leave the land. You must leave these religious leaders. You can't ever come back to Jerusalem. But that's your punishment. And so when Pilate says, what should be, be done... Uh, what do they answer back? The harshest punishment. Let Jesus be crucified. They demand that he be crucified. We already mentioned this, but to the Romans, that was an utter shame. That's the worst that could happen to you. And to the Jews, it was a clear sign of, you're no king of the Jews. You are cursed by God. If they can just get this to be Jesus' final note, that he's crucified, he'll be forgotten. And all the people that he's led astray from the religious leaders will be brought back. As soon as they see their leader, but crucified, cursed by God, hung from the tree. So what does Pilate do? As he's in a pickle, what does he do? Pilate then turns to absolve his role in crucifying the innocent. Verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. Pilate has no way out. His hand really has been forced. Pilate is experiencing incredible pressure. And I know many of you have felt pressure. Different people, uh, family, work. Um, you've felt that. you felt incredible pressure. That you had to do something to where it was going to cost you a lot to not do it. And right here, Pilate capitulates to the mob. Capitulates. He surrenders. He gives in. He folds. Of all his attempts right here, he capitulates to the mob. Now you understand, and we have seen the pressure of a mob. We have lived through a number of different mobs in the last few years. Mobs that have represented, politically speaking, the right and the left in our country. 
And we understand the vulnerability and the fragility, the danger of a mob. Pilate right here experiences, he sees the volatile power of a riot, and he wants to avoid it. And this is when he throws his cards on the table, and he is done. I think about capitulation. This is, this is really interesting. Um, happened the last couple weeks, but um, the CEO of Disney, which, um, welcome back from Disney, Dave and Marianne. It was a great trip with family. You might find this interesting. Disney CEO, Bob Chappick, says this. This is a week and a half ago. A public statement about his company's silence over a Florida law preventing children from being formed or challenged in their sexual identity by the public school districts. Right? So the governor is trying to write a law that's going to prevent the school from really influencing kids' minds over their sexual identity. He speaks up because he was criticized for being silent on the law, and Disney has a huge presence in Florida. And he says this, that they are not going to be outspoken about legislation in Florida because their motivation and their big influence or their big leadership is to be a culture influencer. We're not going to legislate culture. We are going to influence culture. Our storytelling, our movies, our entertainment are going to shape people's minds far more, far more. And we can do more for progressivists with what we produce than any legislation that we promote. Those were his exact words. Really showed his hands right there. Really, which I thought about that as I watched the movie Tangled last night with my kids. I, I, wow. Um, this is good. Thanks for letting me know that, Bob. That's good. I'll be more aware as a parent. That lasted for two days. We're a culture influencer. I'm not going to say anything about this legislation. We, don't, we won't take a stand one way or another. But he experienced pressure, and it only took a few days for him to come back and to walk that statement back and say, no, 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 no. We will be for this legislation. We will move it forward. We will speak out about it. I've changed my mind. Or you experience pressure. And we understood in that moment as we watched and listened that Disney is not as much a culture influencer as it thought it was, but is more of a puppet of culture and society. You see, I think it's amazing when people say something right, that you can hear, you can hold them accountable to. It's hard. It's so much harder, right? We like to just be silent on everything, and, and no one holds us accountable to what we say. But as we see this, we understand what's going on. There was some honesty right here. You're not as much of a culture influencer are as much as you are being used by it. You are being used by it. This was not your desire. It was other people's desire, and you fold to it. You capitulated. You surrendered to it. 
That is what Pilate does right here. He gives in. And his only alternative is this. I'm going to absolve myself. I'm going to give the sentence. The Jewish leaders cannot do this. They cannot execute Jesus. They need Pilate. And this is what Pilate does. He washes his hands publicly. We've talked about Roman and Jewish culture. You know what this leans towards? This leans towards Jewish culture. This is a ceremonial cleaning Pilate is not getting ready to eat lunch. Pilate is not afraid of COVID. Pilate is washing his hands in front of people to make a public statement. And I believe this is a slap in the face to the religious leaders. I am not going to do your dirty work. I am not guilty of what you want me to do. Now, here's the truth. Does Pilate get rid of his guilt what he does by washing his hands in front of people? No. He doesn't do that. But it does show that he sees Jesus is innocent, and you religious leaders are not. Right here, um, these verses are actually used to, su- to support anti-Semitism. This is the religious leader's intent. This is the Jewish people's intent and yet we need, to, we need to embrace this as this is our heart when we ignore and reject Jesus. This is the heart of a sinful nature right here. And we can't absolve Pilate. Pilate is just as guilty, and so are we. Right here, Pilate is a coward in the face of the religious leader's animosity towards Jesus. He's not going to stand up. He's not going to do the right thing for the innocent person. And then verse 25, the irony. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And here's the only word that needs to be said about these words. May Jesus' blood be on us and on our children. May God be so merciful that he would shed his son's blood, life-giving, relationship-restoring blood on you and on your children. It's the irony of their words. We'll be guilty of it when this really should be a plea for mercy and grace. If they knew and understood what Jesus' blood gives and accomplishes on the cross for anyone and everyone who turns and follows Jesus. But right here, that's not it. The people are ignorantly embracing their own sin against God and his very own son. And so the penalty is given. Pilate executes the sentence. He released for them Barabbas. And having scourged, that's whipped in a brutal way, Jesus, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. That's how we get to the cross. That's how we get to the cross because Jesus is innocently condemned. But but here's what we need to see in this. There is no way to remove guilt. Pilate, you're wrong. There's no way to remove guilt by washing hands. You can't absolve yourself from your culpability in rejecting Jesus, 
in not standing with him and for his kingdom, like we all have, we cannot resolve that guilt or absolve it by any kind of exterior thing that we might think we can do. There is one way to pure religion in relationship with Jesus, and it is not, it is not by calling for Jesus' crucifixion and somehow trying to wriggle your way out of it in the guilt that comes with it. No, no, this is the one thing that we see, that Jesus removes guilt and gives life by innocently, righteously standing in the place of sinners. And as you and I see him stand in our place, and he's righteous, and he's innocent, and he has done nothing wrong, and he has said nothing wrong, as he righteously and innocently endures evil, that should impact us in two ways. One we find true and real forgiveness. It is not. It is not in Pilate. Whether it's through his schemes or through his public statement of washing his hands, it does not get rid of guilt. But Jesus, righteously and innocently, enduring his cross, you and I can find forgiveness. And the second thing is this. As Jesus stands in the place of sinners righteously, This is how it should impact us, that we can commit to doing the good, the godly, the right, while enduring evil. When we see Jesus stand there and silent, Jesus doesn't have to win the debate. The only thing that matters for Jesus and his leadership It's not the approval of the people. He's not trying to win votes here with his silence. He is only and ever committed to his Father's plan. Think about it. You and I face that same kind of test as disciples in this life. Will we commit to doing what God wants even while we endure evil? We're going to talk about that more next week, what that endurance looks like. But I've got a few questions for you. Sometimes the righteous answer is to say nothing. We see Jesus model that perfectly right here. Why does he say nothing? It's because he is committed to his Father's plan. Now, sometimes in our commitment to the Father's plan, it does mean that we say something. And so I want you to think about what are those situations that you're going to face where my commitment to the Father's plan is to not say anything in this situation. Or it is to say something. This is the time to speak. This is the risk worth taking. When is that and when is that not? Proverbs 26, 4 through 5 gives us an example of that. Right? We get, we get seemingly contradictory proverbs, right? Answer a fool. Don't answer the fool, right? But it gives two different reasons. Hey, d- don't answer the fool according to his folly because you'll, you'll just look like a fool like him. You just, you just be quiet, right? And then the other is answer a fool according to his folly so that he doesn't think he's wise in his own eyes, right? Two different. And so here's my question this week. It's this. When, when are you going to, committed to your heavenly Father's plan, going to be silent? 
and when committed to your heavenly Father's plan, are you going to say something? When is that? What does that look like for you? I just got a piece of advice right, right before this worship service. It was really good. I'm walking through something I've never experienced before. And it was so helpful and so freeing to hear. It's not your place to say this. Just avoid saying this. You don't need to be that person. It was good. Good wisdom. What is it for you? Committed to your Heavenly Father's plan. When do you not say something and when do you say something? Second question, will our animosity or passionate beliefs and values lead us to compromise our own love of the truth? Here's the point. The religious leaders got carried away. And what did they do? They condemned an innocent man. You know, sometimes we want our camp to be right so much that we are willing to sacrifice the truth, that we're willing to sacrifice justice. Right here in this story, we see the religious leaders, Pilate knows it, he nails it. You guys are envious. You're envious. Jesus did so well, he was so successful, he was so influential You're envious. The religious leaders jettison truth. They compromise their love for the truth because of their animosity towards Jesus. But right here, we also see what? Pilate, out of fear, compromises the truth. What if I'm wrong? What if I lose my power, my influence? What if Jesus becomes the Messiah? Ooh, This could be really difficult in my record with Caesar. You know, if I declare Jesus innocent, and this comes back to bite me. The pressure, he was afraid. And then lastly, I want to come back to this question. Why does God allow evil injustice? I think one of the greatest apologetic answers that we have as Christians for our own souls not not just for other people, but for our own souls, is this, why is there so much evil that we would see God's glory in that he brings brings out infinite grace for you out out of an evil, envious plan of the religious leaders, out of the cowardice fear of Pilate to not stand with the innocent, to not stand with the righteous, to betray justice. And this is how God brings about his good plan to forgive sinners, to embrace you and I into his family. Why does God allow injustice that he can show us how he can turn evil to good, to fulfill the story of redemption? I think of Joseph, and we'll close with this. Joseph, right, he's betrayed. Joseph's story is is so much lighter, so much smaller, but so similar to Jesus'. He's betrayed by his own family. He's rejected by them, sold into slavery. He's wrongfully accused. He's innocent of the things that he's accused of. 
sent to jail. And yet these are his words after he sees his brothers again, after a lifetime of years, after all those injustices and the wrongful things that they did to him and the accusations that he endured. And this is what he says in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many would find life. Father, thank you that you take the evil and brokenness in our world and in your grace, you bring about good. Thank you for what Jesus endured being wrongfully accused. God, I pray for I pray for good community groups this week as we wrestle with some hard questions. When do you say something and when do you not? And God, I pray most of all that we would be able to have a seasoned testimony, that we would be able to say something amazing about your grace. And Lord, in those times when we are silent, that still your grace would shine through. God, I pray for our church I pray that we would reflect Jesus in that we do not have to win. Our camp is not always right. And that we would much rather follow you than anyone else's ideas about this world. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.